that true crime has become an obsessively popular genre, it is no surprise that when people find out we are forensic scientists, we are met with an outpouring of questions. Did you work that recent homicide? Yo, what does decom smell like? You must love your job, huh? It's through questions like these that we have come to realize that you want more. I'm Bodine. And I'm Darby, and we are here to serve up the coffee talk version of everything you need to know about the science, laws, and people behind the yellow tape. Welcome to the Washoe County Sheriff's Office. Coffee with a Criminalist. Hello, everyone. Hi, guys. Welcome to another episode of Coffee with a Criminalist. And specifically, welcome to part two of our CODA series. Today's episode is fueled by Rain Shadow Coffee. And this was actually a really new coffee place for me and Darby. We're pretty excited to share this um, location with you guys. They sell whole bean bag coffee for use at home as well as wholesale coffee for restaurants and offices. Their coffee can be found and bought on their website at www.rainshadowcoffeesierra.com. This is a husband and wife duo who are native to northern Nevada. They are bringing Rain Shadow to the area following their uncle's roastery in northern Washington and he's been roasting there since 2009. They are all about the Reno, Sparks, and Tahoe community and partnerships, and they can't wait to work with a wide variety of coffee lovers. Yeah, and if you love coffee, you guys should really give their beans a try. We tried the Dungeness Dark and the... Sun Chaser Espresso Blend, which is a medium roast. Yeah, and I was a little afraid to try that Dungeness Dark, because Darby's all about them... I love dark Dark roast. coffee. Yes. Um, but it was not bitter. I really liked it. So good. and so smooth. So um, we just did it in a French press here yeah. at work. Mm-hmm. No, it was really delicious. So give them uh, a, a try and try their coffee out. And they were really fun. They actually contacted us. They heard about it and they said, hey, we don't know if you you know need any other coffee places in town, but we would love to work with you guys. And we just thought that was really nice of them. Yes, it was great working with them and their coffee is delicious. And if you guys saw our post on Instagram today, you will notice that it is being, the coffee is being featured in two mugs that say With Love from Reno. If you are not familiar with With Love from Reno, it is a side project of um, Summer Elston who owns Pretty Little Paper Company and she does all things paper. She does invitations. Um, she did my wedding invitations actually um, and my wedding uninvitations. We had to uninvite people and she's got a couple. She didn't paint them but there are two really beautiful murals in town that say with love from Reno and that's where this comes from. Um, so if you love to wear Reno swag, give her Etsy shop a look. She's got camping mugs. She has really cool tie-dye right now. Um, Christmas tree ornaments, anything you can think of that say with love for me now. So that's that's what's being featured on our podcast post today. And on this episode, we're going to discuss the 2008 um, sexual assault and homicide of 19-year-old Brianna Dennison, which is a pretty familiar case mm-hmm. in the Reno area. It was a big deal. Yeah, and this case actually led to some really big laws in our state. And so... We also have the state CODIS administrator joining us on this episode. So this is a big one, guys. So grab your cup of coffee and settle in and let's get started. So we'll first take a look at the case itself. And um, Brianna was a 19-year-old Reno native. She'd actually graduated from Reno High School in 2006. And when this case occurred in 2008, she was attending Santa Barbara City College. And Brianna was home on her winter break from school and she was visiting her family and friends. And on the evening of January 19th, 2008, her and some friends had gone out for the night and they returned to their friend's home in the early mornings of, early morning hours of January 20th. 
Brianna had actually gone to sleep in the living room on the couch, and she had taken a teddy bear to bed and a blanket and was asleep on the couch, and her friend had actually retired to her bedroom to go to bed. And then later in that morning, when her friend awoke, she couldn't find Brianna. And oddly enough, the blanket that Brianna had gone to sleep with had actually been kind of strewn across kind of the kitchen area of the house, and it was near the back door. Um, But the teddy bear that Brianna had been sleeping with was actually missing. Additionally, her friend noted that um, while she couldn't find Brianna or the teddy bear, she was able to locate Brianna's shoes, her purse, and her cell phone. And these are really items that someone doesn't tend to leave the home without, especially your shoes. I could see maybe leaving your cell phone behind, but definitely not your shoes. And so being that this was odd, um, her friend reached out to Brianna's parents and then also... The authorities were notified shortly after that potentially there was a missing persons case going on. During this initial investigation of the house where Brianna was potentially abducted from, investigators collected a cushion from the couch that she had been sleeping on that appeared to have a possible bloodstain and apparent mascara smears on it. Additionally, uh, swabs were collected of the doorknobs in the residence, and from these doorknob swabs, an unknown male DNA profile was developed, and it didn't match anyone in the house, so it was put into CODIS, but there was no hit that happened. And this was kind of a little bit of a letdown, as because no- investigators really didn't have any other leads at the time, so... Unfortunately, there wasn't a lot more evidence in this case, so investigators were really tasked with running down leads, making house calls, conducting interviews, um, just to see if there was any more information to be obtained, and there wasn't. So often in this case, um, they will reach out to other law enforcement agencies Mm -hmm. and see if there's any other cases in the area that kind of match the description or... um, Kind of fit the profile. Yes, of any any other crimes that had occurred in the area and um, in the months surrounding Brianna's disappearance. I think that's really important to note, too, and maybe something that our listeners don't know is that, you know, um, we all live in Reno, but there's a Reno Police Department, a Sparks Police Department, Washoe County Sheriff's Office, um, you have Carson. And so even though, like, a crime occurs, not all of the agencies are aware of that case because it might be owned by somebody else. So this is a really big thing that law enforcement agencies do is to reach out to one another and say, hey, we had this this crime occur. Do you have anything in your um, files that maybe match this? And that proved to be really important in this case. Yeah, so after reaching out to those other local agencies and asking if there were any other similar cases, um, they identified two additional cases that seemed to may have been linked based on the MO and the area in which they had occurred. And the area was within miles of the abduction site of Brianna. And one of the cases was a sexual assault of a female victim in a parking garage on the UNR campus, and that occurred on October of 2007. The second was on December 16th of 2007, where a female victim was returning to her apartment near UNR and was abducted from her apartment complex and sexually assaulted at a nearby unknown location. And so let's take a moment and take a step out of the case for just a second, and let's discuss sexual assault evidence. On some of our previous episodes, um, we have talked about this with you guys, and that when a sexual assault occurs, um, really at the time, the victim's body becomes the crime scene. And the victim's body may have potential DNA that's left behind from the possible assailant in the form of body fluids like semen and or saliva. And sometimes even skin cells can be left behind in places where the victim was physically touched during the assault. And if a victim undergoes a sex assault exam, 
Large Q-tips, we call these swabs here in the lab, are used to collect this DNA that still might be present on the victim's body. However, sometimes there's just very little DNA from the assailant that is actually left behind in the crime scene or on the victim's body. And unfortunately, sometimes also the victim reports the assault maybe a few days after. Um, and so by other means, such as like bathing, eating, drinking, or using the restroom, this potential DNA from the suspect or assailant is just lost. Um, because these swabs are from a victim's body, not only do they potentially collect that suspect DNA, but they also collect the victim's DNA. And this is because we all have cells that line our body cavities. And so not only do you collect, you know, that foreign or suspect DNA to the victim, but you also end up collecting a lot of the victim's DNA as well. And so oftentimes when we look at sex assault evidence, there is a lot of female DNA and maybe just a very small amount of male DNA on the swabs collected from the sex assault exam. And when this occurs, it's a little bit problematic in our DNA process because there's so much female DNA. The male DNA is really not seen in the end result because it's almost just overpowered or masked by that amount of female DNA. But luckily, there's an additional type of DNA analysis that can be done. It's called Y-STR analysis. And Y, as in the letter Y, refers to the Y chromosome. And Darby, what is unique about the Y chromosome? It's unique in that it is only found in males, and the Y-STR profiles are passed on from fathers to son, and it's only inherited paternally. Yeah. And so when you look at the type of results that you can get from Y um, testing, it's not actually as individualizing as our normal STR testing because that Y STR profile will be shared between a father and his son and any paternally related individual in their family. So male cousins from the father's side will have that. And so when we talk about YSTR results, oftentimes we're met with a little bit of pushback in that they say, well, how is this really helpful to a case? But if you remember that on these samples, we have so much female DNA that if we were to process it through our normal means, we would essentially lose any of the male genetic information. And so while it's not very individualizing, you still get a good DNA result from a sample that potentially you might not have any genetic information about the suspect or assailant in a crime. When we look at that, um, while it might not be individualizing, it still gives us information that maybe can give a lead in a case. Yeah, and also because it is paternally um, inherited and so all these paternal relatives share the same YSTR DNA profile. We don't put these types of profiles into CODIS, so Correct. they're not searched into CODIS. And that's an important thing to remember for this mm -hmm. case. And it's also really important to keep in the back of your mind while we discuss the rest of this case, that because it's shared between fathers and sons, by collecting DNA from one individual, you can have insight into another individual's DNA profile. Now stepping back into the case, a YSTR DNA profile was developed from the swabs taken from the second victim's body. These results matched the YSTR profile developed from the doorknob swabs that had been taken from the residence where Brianna was abducted from. This evidence now officially linked these two cases, and with this link, investigators now believe they were dealing with a serial rapist. And with that interview with that second victim, law enforcement was now able to get a description of the suspect's vehicle and his physical appearance. Nearly four weeks later, on February 15th of 2008, 
A body of a young woman was found in a field in South Reno by a man who had been out on his lunch break. A day later, this body was identified as Brianna, and numerous items of evidence were collected from the scene and from Brianna. The DNA profile generated from one of these items of evidence matched the DNA profile developed from the doorknob swabs, linking the same person from where Brianna had been taken to where her body was found. The YSTR obtained from each of these items also matched the YSTR profile obtained from the other victim. And, you know, Darby, I don't know if you were in town during this um, case. I was not. This was a couple years before I moved into town for college. But I was actually here, and I was a college student, um, and I really do remember this time very vividly. Uh, it was quite nerve-wracking, to be honest with you, like walking to my car at night. Um, campus began handing out whistles on the quad so that you could make noise if you were in some sort of distress. And if you guys are familiar with the campus, when you walk around, you'll see kind of these... Um, like tall fixtures that have like a blue light in the evenings and they say emergency on them. These emergency light stations were uh, initiated and put up, you know, during this time as well uh, for safety precautions. And I remember billboards of Brianna up and her photo. And I just remember this kind of overwhelming feeling of hope kind of around town. There was just so much buzz about her case that, you know, maybe we really would find Brianna alive. Um, and I still remember the news announcement that her body had been found. Um, and I can honestly say there was just a very sad, heavy atmosphere, not only in town, but really on campus. I think there was just so much buzz at that time about it. Um, I just remember there being this overwhelming feeling, feeling of sadness uh, when this occurred. And after her body was found, her case really stayed in the media light because a serial rapist and murderer has was still on the loose mm -hmm. in our community. So work really continued by law enforcement. And during the investigation, over 800 reference samples were collected from suspects, subjects, and even volunteers in our community. Um, this was all funded in part by the Bring Bree Justice Foundation, which was created in Brianna's honor and promoted legislative and legal efforts to increase consequences and in preventing violent crimes and promoted public awareness to assure the safety of all women and children in Nevada. Additionally, funds were secured to eliminate the backlog of convicted offender samples that our lab had at the time. And even through this massive search effort, no matching DNA profiles were found to the evidence. I think that's something really important to note too that you know, these 800 reference samples that were collected, a lot of those were volunteer samples. And people, you know, may not know this, but you can volunteer to have your DNA profile put into the CODIS database. And a lot of people will ask me when I say this, like, why is that important? Um, for one reason is if you ever do go missing and maybe there are unidentified remains found, uh, we could match you back to your reference sample that you volunteered to put into the CODIS system. Um, it can also help us in other ways. And so I think it was just we should kind of give a little shout out to our community like so many people that stepped up that volunteered for that um you know gave their dna profiles voluntarily in that if you recall when we discussed uh brianna's body being found there was other items that were recovered at the same time at the scene and two of those items proved to be very important in this case because they ended up leading to a secret witness tip that really panned out in this case and the items were two different pairs of women's panties. And specifically, one of these pairs was interesting to investigators because they weren't sure 
from whom they originally belonged to because the DNA evidence from those panties didn't link the panties to either Brianna or her murderer or to any of those other victims from those other two cases. And so this led investigators to believe and to ultimately announce that the unknown rapist that they were potentially searching for might be keeping the panties from his victims. And during the investigation, police received over 2,000 secret witness tips. But it wasn't until nearly a year later, on November 1st, 2008, that a very important secret witness tip led investigators to look into a man by the name of James Bila. The tip came from a friend of Bila's girlfriend who said Bila's girlfriend told her about finding women's underwear in his car that weren't hers. Investigators interviewed Bila, but he denied having anything to do with her murder and declined to give a DNA reference sample. So investigators then spoke to his girlfriend, who allowed them to take a DNA sample from their four-year-old son on November 24, 2008. So if you recall back to the evidence that we've discussed so far, much of the DNA evidence resides in Y-STR analysis. And as Y profiles are shared between fathers and sons, by obtaining Bila's son's DNA profile, they also inadvertently could check James Bila's Y DNA profile. The YSTR profile developed from Bila's son matched the YSTR profile from the doorknob swab from where Brianna was abducted, the DNA evidence collected from where Brianna's body was recovered, and the DNA evidence from that second sexual assault victim. This gave investigators enough probable cause to arrest James Bila the next day. A DNA profile was generated from James Bila's reference sample, and it matched the DNA evidence in both of those cases. Bila had been previously arrested but had not had a DNA sample taken because there was no arrestee laws in the state at that time. Brianna's family and members of law enforcement and the Washoe County Crime Lab worked diligently to bring arrestee laws to our state. And in May of 2013, Brianna's law was signed into effect, and now anyone arrested for a felony charge must have their DNA sample taken and put into the CODIS database. And if you'll recall, those doorknob swabs, when they were initially um, analyzed, there was a profile that was put into CODIS. And this is the reason why there was no hit in the CODIS system, because at that time, Bila's DNA profile was not in the system. On May 27, 2010, a jury found James Bila guilty on all five charges associated with the three victims in this case, and he was sentenced to death on June 2, 2010. He is currently serving time and awaiting on death row. The process to change law can be lengthy, but it is a process that some people in our lab have been very passionate about and dedicated a lot of time to. So here today to dive a little deeper into details about CODIS and how Brianna's law became a law is supervising criminalist and Nevada State CODIS Administrator Stephen Gresco. Well, welcome, Steve. Thank you so much for being on our podcast today. Thanks for having me. And for everyone listening, Steve is actually my supervisor, so this is pretty exciting to get him in the hot seat this time. <laughs> <laughs> All right, to start us off, where are you from, Steve? I'm from Prescott, Arizona. Born and raised Arizona boy. And what brought you to Reno? Uh, working for the sheriff's office brought me to Reno. Okay. And what is your educational background? I have a bachelor's degree in biology from Brigham Young University in Provo, Utah. Mm -hmm. And what is your job at the Washoe County Sheriff's Office in the Forensic Science Division? 
I'm a supervising criminalist in the biology unit, and I am also the CODIS administrator for the state of Nevada. And how did you become the state CODIS administrator? I was hired to be the state CODIS administrator. Um, I had worked several forensics jobs before coming to Nevada, and I, I saw job openings that actually had a regular uh, casework position and a CODIS administrator position. And I actually applied for the regular casework position because I didn't want to be a CODIS administrator. <laughs> I like to be in the lab. But I got a phone call from uh, the lab director at that time asking, telling me that I uh, qualified for the CODIS administrator position. And she let me know that it wasn't just the CODIS admin job, that I would also get to do casework. And would I be interested in applying for that one as well? I said, sure. And, and I end up getting that job. And what does a state CODIS administrator do exactly? So that kind of ties into the structure of CODIS, but uh, just real quickly, the state CODIS administrator is the person for the state that's responsible for all of the CODIS profiles that get put into the database for that state. So the FBI wants one point of contact that they can deal with. Uh, they don't want to have to deal with all of the different CODIS administrators on a daily basis. They just want one point of contact, and so they, they have CODIS structured so that they can have that one point of contact. That's smart. Understandable. Before we get too far into this, can you tell us what CODIS is and why it's useful? CODIS is an acronym. It stands for the Combined DNA Index System, and that is just a real quick way of saying, uh, describing a piece of software that was created by the FBI back in the 90s. Um, it kind of coincided with the advent of DNA technology. So they recognized early on that there would be DNA profiles that would be found at crime scenes for which uh, there was no suspect. So a, a DNA profile is not real helpful on its own. You need reference samples to compare to it so that you can say, oh, these two things match and then you can go to court and, and prosecute that person. But if you don't have any suspects, then it's hard to do anything with that profile. So the FBI created a piece of software called CODIS that they could put their forensic unknown profiles into and then compare them to the DNA profiles of uh, people who are likely to have committed crimes, such as people who are sitting in prison. And so they passed the DNA, Federal DNA Act back in 1994 that Congress gave them the permission to create this software and to do this searching. And uh, at, its, at its beginnings, that's all it did. Just And essentially the lion's share of what it does today just compares forensic crime scene profiles to offender profiles. And uh, one thing that I thought was interesting when I started working here is I learned that CODIS has various levels within it, and it's pretty highly organized. So can you uh, tell our listeners how that is organized? Yeah, it's organized by local DNA index systems. Those are your eldest's. So that would be uh, a crime lab that's located in um, municipalities, so say, the FBI likes to use uh, the state of Florida and the state of California when they explain this to people. So I'll use California since we're close to them. You, you have a crime lab that's associated with, for example, the LA Police Department. You also have a crime lab that's associated with the LA Sheriff's Department. 
you have crime labs associated with Orange County, you have all these different municipal police departments have their own crime lab. Those are going to be local DNA index systems. So they will load all of their crime scene profiles that they develop into their own DNA version of CODIS. And then once, actually daily now, those profiles will get uploaded to their state's crime lab. So in Richmond, California, the Cal California Department of Justice has their Estes, the state DNA index system. So every crime lab in the state of California uploads their forensic profiles to the Estes in Richmond, and then the Estes in Richmond uploads everything to the FBI, and the FBI is considered the national DNA index system. So you have your local, that's your Eldis, your state is your Estes, and then the national is Endis. And what types of profiles specifically can be entered into CODIS? So as I said before, you have your offender profiles. Those are going to be your convicted offenders. Those are people who are in prison. Um, some states have passed arrestee legislation, so it allows them to collect offender samples from persons who have been arrested. Um, there are some federal ones as well that are considered offend offender classes, so the FBI collects detainee offender samples. We don't have detainees in Nevada, so we don't collect them. But there are some other offender classes that are out there. Um, it's highly dependent on your state's laws. The FBI left it to each state to determine uh, what they would collect. And so it's really up to the state legislatures to um, expand or restrict who they want to consider in their offender class. Um, you also have your forensic profiles. So those are going to be your crime scene profiles. Those, the rules for what gets uploaded are controlled by the FBI. And again, that's tied to the Federal DNA Act that was passed by Congress back in the 90s. And then there's a missing person side of CODIS as well, where you can try to identify unidentified human remains or, as it's called, missing persons. And you can actually volunteer to have your profile into CODIS as well, correct? In the state of Nevada, we have a law in the books that allows us to search within our own state anybody that voluntarily wants to put their DNA in. Mm -hmm. And how many profiles are in uh, Estes and Endis? So in Nevada, our Estes has about a quarter of a million profiles total. Wow. In Endis, there's, oof, it's got to be close to... 20 million now. Wow. So I actually wrote them down. They have, do you want me to break it out for you? Yeah, sure. Sure, that's fun. Yeah. So nationally, so this would be every state, there's 14 million convicted offenders, 4 million arrestees, uh, approximately a million forensic profiles. In the state of Nevada, we have 100,000 offenders, convicted offenders, 113,000 arrestees. There's... 12,000 forensic profiles at Endis, and just under 1,000 that are only searched here at the state. Oh, that's a lot of profiles. Yeah. And a lot of searching lot of that searching. You're, you're organizing <laughs> and keeping track of. Um, and how often do these searches happen at the Estes or state level and the national level? So the FBI requires us to search our own stuff within our state before we send it to them for searching. Uh, they want us to get our local hits before we start looking for national hits. And we search every day. 
that changed a few years ago. Uh, CODIS didn't used to be able to handle it. It took a really long time to do the searches, like several days to get the search to complete. But uh, more modern versions of CODIS are, are way more powerful and have allowed us to do those searches quicker. And so we, we search and upload daily now. And do you store people's personally identifiable information in CODIS? Like what you see on TV, you can go into CODIS and look somebody up. Is that how it works? No, there is no personally identifiable information. It's all, um, spec we call them specimen IDs. It's just uh, alphanumeric sequenced to help identify the profile. Uh, CODIS just searches the DNA profiles, and then it has a very minimal set of identifiers to help the labs know which profile they're dealing with. All of the personally identifiable stuff has to be stored within a law enforcement database at the local level. Mm -hmm. And can you just go in and like willy-nilly search CODIS for any reason? No, you can't. So there are rules for what can be searched against what. Uh, we do that by structuring the search beforehand so all that I am doing as a CODIS administrator is putting the profiles into CODIS and then letting CODIS do the searches per its rules. And we don't go in and specifically search any offender for, for anything. We let CODIS do its own searching and come back and see if it found anything. And you guys are actually audited, correct, to make sure you don't do that? And there are fines and things associated if you use CODIS um, in incorrectly. Yeah, it's felony to uh, misuse CODIS and the FBI actually we have to sign a, a memorandum of understanding which is essentially a contract with them that says we won't break their rules uh, in the way that we search things and in the things that we search. So there's rules for what we can put in and at what level it can be searched. So we, we follow the FBI's rules they, they come every couple of years and do a full audit of, of what we're doing with CODIS to make sure that we're following the rules. Mm -hmm. And you already touched on it a little bit that um, CODIS has to operate under both federal and state laws. And because of that, you actually tend to be quite involved with our state legislation as it pertains to CODIS, right? Yes. And um, a few laws that you had a lot of involvement in was Brianna's Law um, and also retro Retroactive Collection. Uh, can you tell us what Brianna's Law is and when it went into effect? So Brianna's Law was a law that actually had been tried, we had tried to pass, we, meaning the crime labs in the state, had tried to pass several legislative sessions prior to 2013 is when it actually got passed. And Brianna's Law is essentially, we wanted to expand the scope of our offender collection law to include people that were arrested. Um, several states had done it before us, and we thought it would be a good idea to have a more robust search of our offender population to include arrestees. Uh, it had died in committee in two prior legislative rounds. But in 2013, the Brianna Dennison's family uh, really kind of made it their, their mission to get that law passed and uh, got some state representatives on board, and we were successful in getting that law passed, which allowed us to collect uh, a DNA sample when anybody is arrested for a felony. So it has to be a felony. Uh, it does not include juveniles. So any adult arrested for a felony in the state of Nevada, we're going to collect their, their DNA sample. 
And if they're not ultimately convicted of that felony, then they can petition to have their sample removed and we will remove it. And Nevada was kind of in the forefront of doing this, right? The arrestee law or had other states done it prior? And is it common now practice around the rest of the United States? So I wouldn't say we were one of the first. There were probably 20 states who had done it prior to us getting around to it. And I think the number sits at around 31 or 32 states that currently do it. Um, there have been some legal challenges to it, but uh, for the most part, it's, it's held up. Supreme Court has found it to be um, constitutional. You can look at Maryland versus King decision by the Supreme Court that uh, found it was not a violation of the Fourth Amendment to do it. Very similar to taking a mug shot, uh, taking your prints when you're arrested. We take those things to identify you. And the police department does not throw those things away. They don't burn your mug shot and your fingerprints when you're done with the booking process. They keep those things and use them for, for future purposes of identifying you. And your DNA sample is the same way. We're not using it for any nefarious purpose. We're, we're using it to identify you. And at the time of uh, Brianna's murder, there were no arrestee laws in the state, and there was actually quite a large backlog of offenders. Can you explain how backlogs and CODIS can hinder searching processes? Well, we can only search the profiles that are in our database. So if we have a room full of offender samples that have been collected and we don't have the means to process them right away, then they're just going to get backed up. And there's a variety of reasons for why they get backed up. Uh, generally has to do with a lack of personnel and high demands mm -hmm. for, for turnarounds. Um, the way that we tackled that backlog problem in the past was to outsource them. So we would gather up all of our offender samples and send them to another lab that we had vetted and, and uh, determined that they were a good laboratory to use and had all of the accreditations that we required and that the FBI required. And they ha ran through all of them in a very rapid fashion. We reviewed all of them in likewise rapid fashion and got them uploaded quickly. And are you faced with people who oppose the concept of CODIS in general? I don't know if people are opposed to the concept of CODIS. I think that most reasonable Americans, not just Americans, uh, CODIS is actually uh, software that's used around the world. There's no connectivity to our the profiles in the American database, but there are a majority of countries in the world have asked the FBI for their software and use the CODIS software to search their own national databases. Um, so I don't think that there's opposition to uh, the concept of CODIS. What I find pushback on is the scope of who should be included as an offender. That's the main thing. I think most people can agree that if you're convicted of murder or sexual assault or some other violent crime that you should be in a database and we should be keeping tabs on whether you show up in another crime scene or not. But um, maybe somebody who wrote a bad check shouldn't be included in the database. But again, I don't make those decisions. Those are lawmakers' decisions to make. We just, whatever laws they pass, uh, we collect the samples and put them in CODIS. And uh, talking about backlogs, do you currently have a backlog for CODIS in, the, in Northern Nevada? No, we got rid of our backlog eight or nine years ago. 
and have done a pretty good job keeping it at, at zero backlog. We did have, uh, when we shut our lab down to renovate in 2019, obviously we, if we have no outsourcing contract in place to send them out and we have no ability to process them in-house, then they're going to back up in a room. But So we, we renovated our lab in 2019 and they built up a little bit there, but we uh, rapidly knocked them out at the back half of that year. So no, no backlog for offender samples. What is your current approximate turnaround time for those samples that are coming in? About 20 days. Wow. So like really no backlog. Like you guys are yep. cranking them out. Yep. Awesome. Thanks for listening to part two. We hope you guys are enjoying our sit down with Steve Gresco. He'll be back next week to continue the conversation about CODIS. Stay tuned for a trailer about our third and final episode in our CODIS series. Next week, we highlight the homicide of Michelle Mitchell, a 19-year-old nursing student at the University of Nevada, Reno. This case covers a lot of topic and ranges from everything from a string of serial homicides from California, an innocence project that our lab worked on and aided in the successful release of an individual who served 35 years behind bars for a crime they did not commit how this case changed Nevada's retroactive collection laws, and ultimately how these laws may have aided in a string of homicides out of Colorado. You do not want to miss next week's episode. See you then. Bye, guys. Wash us one. Yes, one. Go ahead. I'm Sheriff Darren Balaam. Thank you for listening to another episode of Washoe County Sheriff's Office Copy with a Criminalist. This podcast is one more way our office is striving to build trust and partnerships within the community that we serve. To learn more about our office, please visit us on the web at washoesheriff.com. If you'd like to further support this project, click subscribe and be sure to tune in for our next episode to learn even more about forensics. Until next time, folks. Washoe, this is S1. I'll be 1042. Have a good night. S1, copy. Have a good night.